Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. And, you know, because God's kingdom is here, we can go throughout life expecting that sort of thing to happen. We should live expecting things like that to happen. And I want to recommend a book to you written by a man from our church, Paul McGillivray, and it's called Prophetic Partnership. And he has story after story like Lindsay just shared in here, and also instruction on how to grow in learning to hear the voice of God, and then how to actually minister to people and share with them what you're hearing. In fact, the first story, uh, it's just reminiscent of, of what Lindsay just shared in some respects. The, um, uh, he was praying for a woman at the end of a service, and he felt like God was saying to him, say to her, come forward. And he said, it didn't make any sense, so we brushed it aside. It comes back again, it comes back again. And so finally he said to her, ah, he said, I don't know, it sounds crazy, but these words keep coming into my mind. Come forward, does that mean anything to you? And then she said, oh, you're gonna have to read the book, sorry. I'm not gonna tell you, yeah, okay. You can, you can, you can get the book and read it, it's a great book. It's a, you know what? Seriously, right here it is. It's out in our bookstore right now. And uh, <laughs> I don't get paid for anything on this, okay? I get no, no, nothing from this. I do want you to read this, though, because I want everybody here to have experiences like, like Lindsay just shared, and this will help you. Okay, so I haven't told a joke for a while. But I'm gonna tell you a joke that Tyler Brown told me. So if you think it's funny, I get the credit. If you don't think it's funny, then you know where to go with that, okay? Okay, so here it is. I visited my doctor the other day and after sharing all my symptoms with him, he looked at me and he said, well, you have Tom Jones syndrome. And I said, Tom Jones syndrome? Well, I've, I've never heard of that. What is that? Is, is it common? And he said, well, it's not unusual. Okay. Uh, Tyler, 50-50, I gotta say. So I, I could have been that guy that Lindsay was talking to the other night. Back in 1969, 70, 71, in that range of time, that, that was me. I wasn't an atheist, but I sure was into the bar scene, and, um, and I came to know Christ in 1971, really out of a lot of guilt and shame and failure in my life, and it was a dramatic change for me, very dramatic change in my life. In fact, one of my uh, friends said, he said, it was like this, he said, Van came home one weekend selling us drugs, and the very next weekend he came home preaching to us about Jesus. And so to, to him, at least, it seemed, it wasn't quite that quick, but, but it was a pretty, pretty, pretty rapid uh, turnaround, a pretty rapid change in my life. And, and I was really privileged to have a, a man disciple me in those early months, a pastor, who um, encouraged me in two areas. One was to um, memorize scripture. So I, remember, I just started memorizing Bible verses. And the other one was this, he gave me books to read on missionaries. And I remember one book he gave me, it was an older book, and it was just these chapter after chapter on different missionaries, 
back in the days when traveling from America to India took six months, or from, you know, from traveling around the world was a big, big deal. Back in the days when missionaries left home knowing they would never come home again, knowing that very, very unlikely they would ever see their family again. But they were committed to going and to giving their lives for the, for the propagation and growth of the gospel out of love for people. And that, that just set a tone in my life. I read about that and I just, I mean, it, it fit because I had left so much I mean, I was so desperate when I came to Christ that coming to him, my heart was just open for whatever he had for me. And so this this whole idea of what is commitment in the Christian life, and Micah even brought that up uh, in his his, uh, post-worship word here, that it's not always easy. And it takes radical commitment Radical commitment is the standard in the kingdom of God. There was a guy, uh, Watchman Nee, who wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life, and I think that it was um, uh, kind of um, ironic, actually, the title, because what he says is, the normal Christian life is radical. He said, radical commitment is the norm. That's what Jesus calls everyone to. And we focus so much on God's goodness and uh, on, on his love for us, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, and, and rightfully so, we should. And, and we've said many times here, God's in a good mood today. You don't have to be afraid. God's in a good mood today. But it's those very things, those very characteristics about God that enable us to respond to him with radical commitment. Because he is so good, I can trust him. He is so good, he is so loving, he is so merciful, I can follow him no matter what. I can give him my entire life, and I can commit my life to following him. And when you think about it, radical commitment just comes down to one simple thing. What is God saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? Those two questions. And it is really deciding ahead of time, when I discern what he's saying to me, I'm going to obey it, whatever it is. When God speaks, I'm going to obey him, whatever it is. Whatever I might see as the cost or whatever apprehensions or reluctance I might have, I'm going to follow and obey him. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, just to support this thought, It says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And simply put, repentance is when God speaks to us and shows us that we're believing something that's wrong. So I change my belief, which changes my perception, so that I can change my behavior. That's what repentance is. And why do we repent? Why do we trust God enough to allow him to come in and to to rearrange the way I look at life and things that I've learned from a child. Oftentimes, things that I learned in my family of origin or the the culture I grew up in and and things that I just kind of like shrug my shoulders and I think, well, duh, of course that's the way life is lived. Me, when Lori and I got married, we found out that we both had some radically different views on how life was supposed to be lived. In my culture where I grew up, 
you weren't real super direct with people. You kind of implied what you thought and they needed to be savvy enough to infer the meaning and respond appropriately. We, I read an article in Reader's Digest once that said that was called the country code. Now, where Lori grew up, direct. Say what you think, mean what you say. If there's a debate going on, you better speak up and get involved. And you better say what you think. And for me, that was just like, I thought like she had been raised by wolves or something, <laughs> you know? But... I, I won't even tell you what she thought of me. <laughs> we don't want to go there. But over the years, we've had to both adjust and both realize, well, that wasn't perfect and this wasn't perfect. And, you know, to, I mean, but, but it was hard. It caused a lot of fights between us because I did not want to give up the things I believed about life that I had learned in my home growing up and in my hometown. And so why would I trust anyone, including God, give, just say, okay, God, you have, you, have, you have a blank check. Whatever you say, whatever belief system I'm holding on to that you want to change, I'll change it. How can I do that? You know how? Because he's good. Because he's merciful. Because he's kind. Because he loves us. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not going to tell me things that are hard for me to adjust to or that might even bring pain into my life because we are in a war. Realize that we are in a war. And, the, and, and it enables me then, when I read scripture, to read some of the hard things Jesus says and, and say, and, and not just reject it or try to avoid it. You know, there are things that scholars call the hard sayings of Jesus. We're going to look at a couple of those today. And so how do I have a heart that says, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna receive this and I'm gonna let God speak to me through it. Even if it means I have to change some core belief that I've held on to my whole life. So the passage is Matthew 8, verses 18 through 20. Would you like to stand with me? Just out of respect for scripture, let's, let's honor God's word as we read it. So here, I'm gonna start, you just kinda of like listen, follow along by listening. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. So Father, uh, we ask you to teach us. We open our hearts to you to, even, to hear even things that sound hard. We, we wanna be radically committed to you. So speak to us now in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, please. So it comes down to two questions. What's God saying to me and what am I gonna do about it? If I can adjust my heart to that and begin to live with that as, as my primary operating system in my heart and mind and life, then I can take steps ahead into being a radical 
believer, radical Christian. You're not going to do that all at once. And all God's asking for you to do is to get on that path. Get on the radical path and start taking steps down that path. You're not going to go to the end of it today. You're not going to accomplish everything today. But what is the next thing he's speaking to you about? That's always, that's always the question. What is the next thing? What's the next step for me? So we see here uh, a, a series of reality checks is how I, I put it when I read through this passage. Reality check one is this. Jesus wasn't seeking a crowd. Can you believe that? He wasn't seeking a crowd. Here, it, it says here, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. He said, guys, too many people, we got to get out of here. And Jesus wasn't an introvert. He wasn't just trying to hide. He had a strategy. He knew what he was doing. But you contrast that to like how we do things today. Let, let's say this, we're starting a new movement. Six months in, we have 2,000 people. Wow, guys, look at all the people. You know, if, if I was Jesus, this is what I would have been doing. We have to put a committee together. We'll call them deacons or elders or something like that. But listen, guys, it's your job to keep those 2,000 people here. It's your job to find out what they want and keep them happy. That's how we do things today. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus, in his desire to build an army to spread the kingdom of God through the world, he didn't start with a crowd. He realized that to build an army, and to build an army of thousands, to build a healthy army of thousands, you have to start with a handful of healthy. And so he started with 12. Well, he started with three, then 12, and then 70. And, and in the upper room, there were 120. 120 that were radically changed by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit coming into their lives. And I believe that that has something to do with why Jesus didn't entrust himself to the multitudes, because people weren't being born again yet in the way they are now. And so he knew that they might, they might say today they want to follow, but tomorrow they're, they're, going, to, they're going to be back and forth. And, and so he worked with a small group until they were actually impacted with truth. And with, through them then, he was able to reach larger groups and reach the multitudes. It really reminds me of um, Gideon. You know, Gideon in the Old Testament, God tells him, I'm going to use you to deliver your people from the Midianites. And so Gideon puts out this call, and he had 32,000 come, 32,000 troops come. And you know what God said? God said, that's too many. He said, I can't deliver you through them because then you'll think you did it. So he said, tell them, anybody who's afraid, go home. So 20,000 went home. Left 12,000. Okay, still pretty good art-sized army. Now God said, not still too many. He said, I want you to watch, and when they drink, the ones that get down on their hands and knees and just stick their faces in the water, send them home. But the ones that kneel down like this, and they're still holding on to their weapons, and they scoop the water up and drink it while they can still watch, he said, keep those. So that came down to 300, and God gave him incredible victory through those 300. I had a good, and I think it was all because they were alert. They were warriors. They knew that you can't even take that moment to, to, to when you're in war, you can't even take one moment 
to relax and to let your guard down. But I, I had a friend, I've mentioned him many times here, named Charlie Humpley, who was a World War II veteran. And uh, Charlie had done amazing things in the war. He fought for at least three years in the South Pacific in the island jumping campaigns. And uh, Charlie had cancer, he was dying. I spent a lot of time with him sitting by his bed talking. And I was thinking a lot about discipleship. And so I said, Charlie, I wanna ask you a question. I said, would you rather go into battle with 100 men that you don't really know their level of commitment? Or would you rather go into battle, what I said was, with 25 men that are totally committed? And in those days, there weren't women in battle. But he looked at me and he said, I would rather go into battle with one man totally committed than 100 I don't know about. And I think that was Jesus' attitude here because he realizes that with the one, with the three, the 12, the 70, the 120, he could, he could bring in more into a healthy core. And then the whole thing will end up growing to be healthy. So Jesus wasn't into uh, pursuing crowds here. That's just the, the first reality check. Although his heart is to see crowds saved, that wasn't his technique. That wasn't the approach that he took. Now, reality check two is this. A disciple or an apprentice to Jesus trusts him for provision. When you're going to be a disciple or, or as we're saying, an apprentice to Jesus, you trust Jesus for your security and provision in life. 19 and 20, it says, then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this man is a scribe. And the scribes were part of the wealthier class. They worked closely with the Pharisees. Uh, they were lawyers. Some translations call him a lawyer. And they were people that in general resisted and rejected Jesus. Most of the time, a few times there are positive things about scribes, but most of the times in the New Testament, scribes are trying to uh, maneuver Jesus into some uh, statement that he'll make that they can use against him. And so this man being a scribe, and, and he's really part of the enemy camp, it, it would be a great coup for Jesus. He's got a scribe who actually is following him now. And you think about it, there's some, some humility in this guy because this guy, in effect, already has his degree. He's already bona fide in the culture. And, and now he's coming to Jesus saying, I want to learn from you. And so there's humility in that. There was a willingness for him to face the rejection and the onus that would come from the scribal community. All of those things are there, which were good things. And I would think that Jesus would want a guy like that at his side and would want someone from that camp that would, would help. Uh, think of it today, if, if you had like a radical atheist that is saved, comes to know Jesus, or at least comes and says, I want to know Jesus, most pastors, most leaders would say, let's get that guy on stage. <laughs> let's get him up there. Let's get him telling his story. Probably far too early. That's one of the things we do with well-known people, celebrity types. When they come to Jesus, we ought to tell them just, 
just, just grow for a year, two years before you really go out there and become public with this. But that, Jesus wasn't looking at it that way because what Jesus did was he looked into his heart and he saw something in this guy's heart that made him say what he said to him. And his response, the response of Jesus, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He wants this guy to know from the get-go there's gonna be a cost to this. He wants him to know we're not gonna be staying at five-star hotels everywhere we go. We're gonna be sleeping out in fields. We're gonna be staying when people invite us into their home. We're gonna be eating the food people prepare for us and give to us. But you're, you're not entering into a high-class situation here culturally. He wants him to know that. And I think that ultimately what he's trying to get through to this guy is that there, there is the price of giving up many human values for approval of others, for comfort, and for what we would look at as success. Giving those up, that's the price of following Jesus. And this guy has to understand that. Jesus in another place in Luke 14, 27 to 30, I think it is. He said this, he said, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's a hard saying, don't you think? Cannot be my disciple. It's this simple. If you are not willing to pick up your cross and carry it, can't be my disciple because that's what I'm doing. And a disciple follows his teacher. An apprentice follows the one he's apprenticed to, to learn to live like he lived. Jesus voluntarily picked up the cross and went to Golgotha. And this idea of cross, he doesn't carry, you don't carry your cross if you don't do that. Literally, it means pick up his cross. And so a cross is not like a sickness that I have. You know, this is just my cross to bear. I have this illness. Or I've heard people say, you know, their husband was unsaved or their wife was unsaved. And they would say, well, this is just my cross I have to bear. No, that's not your cross unless you accepted Jesus knowing that they were going to reject you. Then that you could say that was a cross. But the cross is something that you intentionally pick up. It doesn't say carry, it says if you don't pick up your cross, it's, a, it's something that you choose to do knowing that there's going to be pain involved, that you're gonna face rejection and difficulty and hardship by doing it. And so Jesus says that's essential to follow him. And then he goes on to say, for which of you when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost? We have to count the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching will begin to ridicule him, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Then in 2 Timothy 2.4, I love this verse. Apostle Paul is talking to young Timothy. This is Paul's last letter. He dies shortly after he writes this letter. But he says to Timothy, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And so it, this is warfare. This scribe thought he was, he was, he was uh, applying for graduate school in kingdom theology. But really... What he was doing was making a petition to join an army, to follow a king who was going into battle. 
And Jesus was a king. This man calls him teacher. He calls him teacher. The next man calls him Lord. But he was more than both of that, those. He was, he was a king. And committing yourself to a king is a serious thing. And in those days, committing yourself to follow, pledging, pledging yourself to a king was something that they held you accountable for. And they held you accountable to. And so Jesus recognizes that. And he wants this man to understand that it's impossible to divide your heart loyalties between the mission God has for you and finding security through houses and, 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 and uh, possessions. He wants this man to know this, that you cannot divide your heart between loyalty to the mission of God and finding security by your own means or by accumulation of wealth. And in our culture, uh, th this should speak to us because we think so much of security. I mean, when they put together a system, they called it, they didn't call it social provision. What'd they call it? Social security. Here's your security. You'll find your security here. And I mean, how many of you uh, have, have seen the articles or the little pop-up advertisements on the internet that say, if you're 55, you should have saved this much for retirement by now. Anybody else seen those? I mean, they're everywhere. Maybe it's just because when you get old, they send them to you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I get them all the time. <laughs> That's not where our security is. Money and possessions are for provision. It's for provision, not protection, not security. It's the Old Testament. Yeah, that's a good word. The Old Testament says money can sprout wings and fly away in an instant. Nothing wrong with having it. Jesus had wealthy friends. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they were wealthy people. The, uh, Zacchaeus, tax collector, a wealthy man, when he repented and came to, came to Jesus, what did he do? He gave away half his wealth, not all of his wealth. So he was still wealthy. He gave away half, but he kept half. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. So Jesus was not against people having money or making money. But he warns us that you can't love God and money at the same time. And that's basically the, the truth that he's driving home right here. So this is, uh, this is just so important for us. Now, later in 2 Timothy, after Paul tells Timothy, don't get entangled in the affairs of this life. You're a soldier. You're under a king. And that king, it's his job to provide for you. And, and so it, later he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. That's saying Jesus is a king. He's the king, descendant of David, King David. And Jesus followed in the kingly line. Now, the two questions for, for a radical commitment are, what's God saying and what am I going to do about it? If you want to start down the path of God's calling you to start down the path of radical commitment, then that's, you start living with those two questions. What's my king saying to me? And I've already decided I'm going to obey him. I just have to figure out what that means. That's all. 
He already has my yes. I just have to understand what he's saying. He has my yes already. And so every time he speaks, I'm going to take a step of obedience ahead in trusting him. And that's, that's exactly how you walk in, in a radical lifestyle. And Jesus was a warrior king. He is a warrior king. He said his, his church, uh, he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That pictures the church attacking hell. Okay? You get that? It's the church on the move. It's the church on the attack. We are attacking the gates of hell in advancing the kingdom of God. And so when you go to war with the king, you go where he goes, where he tells you to go. You sleep where he sleeps, where he tells you to sleep. You sleep right there. You eat what he gives you to eat because he's the king and you're his subject. And Mike and I have talked about this, but Jesus is our friend. He said that in John 15. He said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because I've revealed everything to you that the Father's revealed to me. And that's, that's this intimate friendship. But even if you're best friends with the king, there are times and situations where you don't treat him like a buddy. <laughs> he's not your buddy when he's holding court. He's king then. And you treat him with that type of honor and respect. And, and so this, this is something we need to understand is the, the respect and the honor that he's due as king. I think this is what the Bible gets at when it's talking about the fear of God. Not fear, but just honor and respect for understanding the magnitude of who this person is that I get to call friend. And so Jesus himself received everything he needed from the Father to complete his mission. And that tells us that we will receive everything we need from our King Jesus to complete our mission. Because Jesus said, even as I have been sent, in the same way I was sent by the Father, I am sending you now. And so that means that with the same promises, with the same assurance, with the same confidence, the same power, and the same mission, we can be certain God provides. And we, we rest in that. Now, just to draw some balance here, I don't want anyone to go away thinking, well, okay, I'm going to resign my job now. <laughs> People hear things like that when, when we're preaching sometimes. But here's, there are four biblical financial principles. I boiled it down to four things, okay? There might be more than this. I see four. I just want to give this to you just so no one goes out and quits their job, okay? Point one, work hard. Work hard. If you start a business, if you own a business, work hard. If you work for someone else, work hard. Show up on time and give them everything you've got. Work hard. Second thing is this, spend wisely. You know, you give 10%. That's, that's you know, just honor God with that 10%. Well, the 90% you keep, he's still your king and how you spend that. <laughs> he's still king over that. And so spend wisely according to his truth, his principles, and his priorities. Third thing is this, give generously. Be a generous person. You know, toss in a couple extra bucks on the tip. I, I remember one time with Lori's father, we were down at the boathouse and a big family dinner, and he spent a lot of money at this meal. And the waitress, um, our server, 
somehow she, you know, like oftentimes they don't see what the tip is until later they just walk back. But somehow when he handed her the paperwork, she glanced down and she saw the tip. And she reached out across like two or three people took his hand and said, bless you. I thought to myself, he just bought her kids school clothes for this coming school year. I mean, he gave her a big tip. I don't know what the tip was, but, but I know it was enough that it impacted her in that way. And I just want to say, be generous, be generous. And then the fourth thing is save regularly, but save for provision, not protection. You're going to need a new car. You're going to, you know, the, the, the things are going to happen and the furnace is going to break down. You've got to replace the furnace. So save for those things, but not for protection. You save for provision, not protection. Okay, we're going to move out of that into the third point here. The third reality check is this that uh, Jesus takes precedence over all other relationships. More important than all other relationships. Another disciple, it says, verse 21, another, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury the dead. And I just say, man, that sounds pretty Pretty harsh, doesn't it? <laughs> Skip your dad's funeral. I don't care about that. <laughs> you know, uh, I just want to get this out there. Jesus was all about honoring parents, okay? In fact, in Matthew 15, he says, 15, 4, it says, For God said, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, Honor your father or mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? <laughs> but it tells you how much, how important honoring parents is. I don't know if anybody was ever put to death for speaking evil of their parents, but it tells us how seriously God takes honoring our parents. And Jesus took honoring parents that seriously as well. And there was only one exception, and that was when Honoring your parents would be in conflict with the higher duty you have to honor God. Let's say you have a dad who's an unbeliever or uh, really not engaged spiritually, and it's one of the big festivals, and all the, all the men in, 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 uh, in Israel are commanded to come to Jerusalem and be part of this worship service, and your father is telling you, you stay home because I can't afford, I can't afford to lose a week's of, of income that you will generate if you stay home here and work. And in that case, that man would dishonor his father and go to honor God. Okay, so there were cases like that. But generally speaking, it was you honor your father. Now, to really understand this, and many of you here, I'm sure, have heard um, explanations of this, but three possibilities. One is his father has just died, and he's asking to go have a couple days off to go home for the funeral. Okay, now that's very unlikely because they buried people the same day they died. And so if his father had just died, he would be at home burying him right now, or by the time the servant gets there to tell him, hey, your father died, he'd be lucky to get home in time for the actual 
actual burial. He could be there for part of the uh, mourning season afterwards. But if that was the case, even if it was a week, I mean, I can't imagine Jesus not just saying, yeah, go home, of course, or wait a second. Hey, guys, come on, let's all go. Let's all go home for the funeral, and let's, let's you know, bless this family. So I don't think it was that. Second one was this, that a year after a person was buried, by that time their, their flesh had decomposed in that climate and culture, and they would go into the tomb, and they would collect all the bones, and they would put them in an ossuary that was carved out of the wall of the tomb and probably seal that over somehow. But that was the second burial. And so it could be that he's like the firstborn son, and he's saying, it's my duty to go take care of my father's second burial. And if that was the case, if it was just that simple, again, I can't imagine Jesus not saying, go do it. But if it's six months away, if his dad just died two months ago and he has to wait 10 months, then I could see Jesus saying, no, you know what? You're gonna miss too much. It's kind of like you're applying for a graduate class in college, but you tell the professor, hey, I have to miss the first half of the classes. 20 classes, I have to miss 10 or 12 of them. What's their professor gonna say to you? They're gonna say, hey, you know what? Take the class some other time. You're gonna miss too much to really be part of this. I think something like that is more of what's happening here, what's going on. And the third option kind of fits in with that flow as well because the third option was, well, even a little bit more um, nefarious. Well, the first one wasn't nefarious at all, so it couldn't be more nefarious. But um, he wanted to wait until his father actually died. You know, my dad, I have to take care of my dad for the next two, three years, and then I'll come and follow you. Or this would be the part that would be um, question, would raise his character in, into question. Some believe that he was saying, I want to stay there so that I can get my inheritance. Once my dad dies and I get my inheritance, then I'm all yours. And that would kind of fit because it fits with Jesus just saying to this other man, you know, the son of, the birds have nests, foxes have holes, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so... At any rate, it wasn't Jesus being nasty. It was Jesus being realistic in, in whatever, whichever of those scenarios is right, we don't know. But Jesus lived by this himself. You know, in Matthew 10, Jesus said this. He said, the one who loves father, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's Matthew 10, 37. What Jesus is claiming there is the same rights of honor that, that are due to God. So this is, a, in effect, this is a claim of deity. He's claiming the same authority, the same honor that would be due to God. But then listen to this. Did you know this? In Mark 3, 21, it says this says, when his family heard about this, like heard about all the people coming to him and he's staying up you know, into the wee hours of the morning healing the sick and stuff like that. When they heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. Do you ever know that? His family thought he was losing his mind. His family thought he was going crazy. So they came to take charge of him. They came to like... I don't know what, what they're going to do. Are they going to grab him and tie his hands behind his back and drag him away or what? But they thought he was losing his mind. So they wanted to come after him. 
And then uh, when they actually get there, and I'm, I'm using two different gospels because of the wording I liked. But in uh, Luke 8, same thing, same thing. They're, they think he's out of his mind. So it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. You know, they think you're crazy. <laughs> but he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Okay, so there's, there's no thought of Jesus pulling the apostles aside and saying, guys, listen, we gotta put it on hold for six months. My mom's just going crazy over this or my family, they all think I'm crazy. We just gotta wait. And There's none of that. He didn't let them deter him from his mission. He kept at it. And, and you notice here the two things, they hear the word of God and they do it. That's how Jesus boiled it all down. That's radical discipleship right there. That's being a radical follower of Christ. I decide ahead of time, whatever God tells me to do, I will do it. I will obey him. All the question that remains is, what's he saying and, and, and what's it mean for my life right now? Now, at the same time, he honored his mother uh, at, at the... The wedding feast in Cana, he honored his mother when, he, when against his desires, he turned the water into wine. She, she pushed him into that kind of, and, and he honored her over that. So he, he, held, he held his mother in high honor. And even at the cross, when he's dying, he looks and he sees his mother. And John, the apostle's there, and he said, woman, that's your son now. And son, this is your mother and so he honored her again there. So he was not being dishonorable uh, in, in any way. But he's making a point here that we can't allow any relationships to entanglements to keep us from pursuing God's direction in our lives, to keep us from making radical decisions taking radical steps. You know, they have this phrase today called codependence. And it's just, a, it's just a description for something. It's a real thing. It's when you care so much about what another person thinks of you that, that your emotions kind of like get entangled with theirs. And if they're unhappy, you're unhappy. What Jesus is saying here is none, none of that. No, no codependent relationships. You got to give those up if you're going to be a radical disciple of mine. And that's what he calls us all to. So the question I have today to end it with is this. If I'm there and I'm saying, Jesus, teacher, Lord, what's whichever, I'll follow you anywhere. What would he look at my heart and say to me, to you? Would it have to do with how I view possessions, where I find security in life? Would it have to do with maybe relationships that I value more highly even than I value my relationship with him? Would it? I don't know. But that's a question we need to ask him. Would you stand with me? And our prayer teams, with prayer teams, would you make your way down to the front, please? So the question is, what's my next step in radical obedience? What's your next step in radical obedience? Remember, you're just getting on a path. The path is called radical obedience. 
and you're going to take a step down it. So, Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we can trust you. You are so good. You're so good. We trust you. We trust you so much that we're willing to say whatever you ask us to do, we'll say yes. We'll give you our yes ahead of time. And we'll say yes because you are our teacher. You're our Lord. You're our king. And, and we, we, we apprentice ourselves to you as our king. We follow you. Whatever you say, wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.